Well, Angel and I do not have TV. All we have is Netflix, which you probably know about. So, recently decided to check out this Netflix show everyone's been talking about called Making a Murderer. Maybe you've heard about it. It tells a story that plays on one of our greatest fears, namely going to jail for something you didn't do. The story centers around a man named Stephen Avery from Manitowoc County, Wisconsin. Wisconsin. In 1985, Avery was convicted of sexual assault and attempted murder and served 18 years for this crime. Although he maintained his innocence, come 2003, DNA evidence exonerated Avery and found the real culprit, so he was freed. After being released, Avery went on to file a lawsuit against Manitowoc County for $36 million in damages for his wrongful conviction. I mean, he lost 18 years of his life. To make matters worse for the county, it was discovered that some of the police officers had received information that he was innocent, but they did nothing about it, seemingly on purpose. Specifically, Sergeant Andrew Colburn and Lieutenant James Lank were named. And with this lawsuit, it looked like they were going to be taken down and many others. And in 2005, these two men and others were brought in for depositions for this case. And coincidentally, just a few days after that, a woman named Teresa Halbach disappeared. She was last seen photographing a car for Auto Trader at Stephen Avery's residence. His family ran a junkyard. Avery immediately became a suspect. The Manitowoc County police were chomping at the bit to try and take him down again. However, because of the conflict of interest, Neighboring Calumet County Police led the investigation. Manitowoc County Police were not supposed to have anything to do with this investigation for obvious reasons. But can you guess which guys from Manitowoc County volunteered to be a part of the investigation? Well, it was Sergeant Colburn and Lieutenant Link. The same two guys whose necks were on the line for that other lawsuit, and they were going to be taken down for his first wrongful imprisonment. Well, the search went on for Teresa. A few days later, Colburn called in to dispatch a license plate matching Teresa's car, but he didn't do anything about it. A few days after that, guess what authorities found in Avery's salvage yard? They found Teresa's Toyota RAV4. And even though his salvage yard contained almost 4,000 cars, it took him just 20 minutes to find her car. It's almost like they knew where to look. Because of this, they began to search Avery's residence. His garage, his bedroom were scoured for several days. Nothing turned up. On the fourth day of search, though, his bedroom had been searched many, many times with a fine-tooth comb. They found Teresa's RAV4 key. But can you guess who found the key? It was Lieutenant Lank and Sergeant Colborn, the two guys that weren't even supposed to be there that had a huge conflict of interest. And they're the ones that found this smoking gun piece of evidence. Well, there's there's a lot more of the story. Avery went on to be convicted guilty of the murder of uh, Teresa Halbach. He's currently still serving life sentence in prison. He still maintains his innocence, and so do these filmmakers, apparently, and that's the nature of this documentary. It's called Making a Murderer. Let the Manitowoc police were making a murderer. They framed him to get out of this other lawsuit for his first wrongful imprisonment. The result is that Avery might have been wrongfully convicted and imprisoned for two different crimes and sent to jail twice for two things he didn't do. He's still there now. Now, whether he's really innocent or not, I don't know. You can make up your own mind. Watch the documentary for yourself. But it's an interesting case that's, that's really current right now that, that highlights that our injustice system is, is not perfect. No justice system is perfect. We know that. On the one hand, you have human error. Just good people make mistakes. It's tragic, but it happens, and that results in injustice sometimes. And even worse, though, you have human corruption. And sometimes if a judge or a police officer is corrupt, they can do a lot of damage and make someone who is truly innocent suffer immeasurably because of that corruption. That's the worst kind of perversion of justice, when people knowingly and willingly do what is wrong to further their self-interest and when innocent people, as a result, suffer. Such injustice has happened all throughout human history, we know. But the greatest perversion of justice ever happened to Jesus. You know, the trial of Jesus was the biggest sham ever. 
No one ever suffered more injustice than Jesus. And that's what we find this morning in Mark chapter 14. Take your Bibles, open them there to Mark chapter 14. And I'm not exaggerating. I mean, you may think, what, what's the big deal here? There have been many wrongfully convicted people in the past. What makes Christ's case any different? Well, think about this. Of course, it's always wrong when any innocent person gets convicted for something they didn't do. When they're found guilty for a crime they didn't commit. But in another sense, we're all guilty of something, right? Who's without sin? Before God, who's the ultimate judge, we're all guilty sinners. We all stand justly, rightfully condemned before him. We've all broken God's laws in one way or another. This invites his just judgment upon us. The penalty for that is death, and for unbelievers, a second death. So, in a sense, we're all guilty of something before God. But Jesus was the only person who ever lived that was truly innocent. I mean, 100% sinless, guilt-free from start to finish his life. He, he never did anything wrong, anything deserving of punishment. He incurred no guilt. He never sinned. And so truly, he's the only person that did not deserve to die in any way, shape, or form. He was totally spotless, and anything he suffered wasn't brought on because of his own sin. And it is this fact that makes the death of Jesus the greatest mistrial in the world. How can you convict someone to death who's utterly sinless? He committed no crimes. He didn't do anything wrong, anything deserving of death for sure. The only way to kill such a person is to falsely accuse him. You've got to make up a case, fabricate some evidence, gain false witnesses. It's a huge perversion of justice, though. And then, of course, you have the issue of motive. Why would you want to kill someone who is truly innocent and guilt-free? And here you get into the heart of man's corruption. Jesus was killed for the same reason that Adam and Eve took that fruit from the tree in the garden. They wanted to be their own God. They didn't want God in their lives anymore. They didn't want a Lord, a master over them, someone living their lives for them, so to speak, uh, someone telling them right from wrong what to do. This was their show. They wanted to live according to their ways. They wanted to further their self-interest. They were tired of God interfering. All of this gets taken to the next level when you realize who killed Jesus. Who is behind this? It was all the religious leaders of Israel. The religious leaders, the spiritual judges, they should have been the last people to want to kill the spotless Lamb of God, but... We find they're the ones who fabricate this case against him and order his death. This is what we find taking place in the passage for this morning. Mark 14, verses 53 through 65. Starting last week, we finally entered into the hour for which Christ came. The hour of his death. We watched as he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and completely abandoned While his enemies surrounded him, all of his friends left him, and Jesus faced, or rather, what Jesus faces from here on out, he faces alone. He is the lonely Savior. He's also the innocent Savior. He he was spotless. He was sin-free, completely guilt-free. We can't even conceive what that's like, because we're so not, but he was truly innocent. He did nothing wrong, nothing deserving of death. But we all know that's what happened to him. So it begs the question, how how'd that happen? How was he found guilty of something? What, what did they pin on him? How was Jesus framed? Today we're going to find out, as we witness in our text, the greatest perversion of justice ever. It's a lengthy passage. We'll read it as we go through. But let's just watch as this mistrial unfolds, culminating in the death of sentence of Jesus. Mark 14. I'll give you a little outline to follow along if you desire. Start with number one, the transport. I'll give you some background. Number one, the transport. Last time we saw Jesus was being arrested and a Roman cohort, that's between 200 and 600 soldiers, they showed up in the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus. 
They were accompanied by the temple police and the religious leaders, the priests, the scribes, the elders. Jesus was bound. All the disciples fled and they marched him back to Jerusalem. And this begins the trial of Jesus. But his trial was such a circus. There were two phases, the Jewish phase and the Roman phase. Each phase had three parts. He was bounced around from person to person. None of them could find anything truly wrong in him. We'll get to the Roman phase of his trial in Mark 15. That's coming later. First, we get to the Jewish phase of his trial, which had three parts, like I said. Part one is not found in Mark, but it's found in John chapter 18. It's where Jesus, he's first brought to stand before Annas. Now, who's Annas? Annas was a former high priest. He served from AD 6 to AD 15. He's directly appointed by the Romans. But after his term was over, he still retained a lot of power and influence. In fact, Annas was the most powerful leader politically and spiritually in Israel at the time. Most of this was because of his sons. He had five sons and one son-in-law, and they all went on to be high priests after him. High priest, that's the top position. It doesn't get any higher than that. And so he kept it all in the family. The picture we get, it's like a mafia family. And Annas, he's the godfather. He's the guy at the top, and he keeps pulling the strings through his sons. It's a fitting picture because actually that these high priests, this family, they were in charge of the temple racket. You recall the temple is supposed to be a place of worship, sacrifice, prayer. But it was these people, these high priests, this family, they changed it into a place of business. They transformed the courtyard of the temple into a bazaar, selling animals to be sacrificed at a good price. They had money changers everywhere so foreigners could buy sacrifices in the right currency. All of this for a service fee, of course. And so this high priestly family found that the temple business, that was good business. Worshiping God, that was good business. And they were rich. And you can understand that that's one more reason they hated Jesus. Jesus fiercely opposed their racket. On two separate occasions, Jesus cleansed the temple. You remember where he came and he drove out all the animals. He overturned the tables of the money changers. He, he fiercely exposed their hypocrisy and their greed in front of all the people. And as you can imagine, that's bad for business. That's going to turn people away. They're, he's exposing the whole racket. Jesus attacked their sacred cow and they couldn't let that stand. That just really is that the straw that broke the camel's back, that he had to die now. He, they, they had to be, he had to be criminalized. He had to be his authority and um, taken away. They couldn't let it stand. So with this in mind, Jesus is first brought to Annas after he's arrested. He stands before the Godfather first in this mock trial. Nothing comes of this first trial. Annas questions Jesus about his teaching, about his disciples. Jesus basically responds, I taught in public. Just ask everyone what I said. You know what I said. To this, a temple guard strikes Jesus, and he's led away. Annas wasn't getting anything out of Jesus. He knew that. But Annas also knew that wasn't the real trial. The real trial had to take place before the Sanhedrin. And that's where Jesus goes next. So John 18.24 says, Annas therefore sent Jesus bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And this is where Mark picks it up in, in part two of this Jewish trial. So that we see in verse 53. Look there now. Verse 53 says, They led Jesus away <clears throat> to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Like I said, this is part two of the Jewish trial. Now he stands before the acting high priest of the Sanhedrin. And who is the acting high priest? Like John said, his name is Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the son-in-law of Annas. And they actually lived together. So let me just paint the picture here. The high priest lived in this huge palace complex. Jesus was arrested in the garden. The Roman soldiers take him to the high priest complex. They turn him over to the temple guard. 
And then all those Roman soldiers, they go home for the night. So they're, they're gone at this point. Now the temple guard takes over. He's in the courtyard of the high priest. Like verse 54 says, you have a bunch of temple guard and they're filing into the courtyard of the high priest. They just have to wait now. So they're lighting fires. They're keeping themselves warm. Peter sneaks in to watch the trial. We'll, we'll talk about Peter exclusively next week and his betrayals. So here Jesus is now brought to this complex. Annas also lived in the same complex. So first they take Jesus over to Annas and he does his thing over there. Doesn't work out. So Jesus is marched across the courtyard now over to where Caiaphas lives and is going to stand before Caiaphas and the rest of the Sanhedrin. By now the Sanhedrin had time to gather. Remember, this all takes place in the middle of the night. This is between 1 and 3 in the morning. As Jesus was being arrested, surely they were waking up people across town, members of the Sanhedrin, gathering them together, because this had to be done ASAP. There could be no delay to the trial of Jesus. You might wonder, I've mentioned Sanhedrin, what, what is that? What's the Sanhedrin? Sanhedrin just refers to a local Jewish court. And there were many, in many cities. In Jerusalem was the great Sanhedrin. That's like their supreme court, the highest court. 71 members, Caiaphas the high priest, he was the top member. It consisted of chief, chief priests, elders, and scribes. By this late hour, enough Sanhedrin members had gathered at the high priest's house and trial could finally be in session. They could finally try Jesus. But as we will see, the whole thing was a farce. This was a mock trial. Some would call it a kangaroo court. This was bogus. These religious leaders had made up in their mind long ago that Jesus was guilty and deserving of death. His guilt was a foregone conclusion. This trial is just a formality. They just had to come up with some charges, find some evidence, get some testimony. They could just usher him off to death. That's all they're trying to do here, to speedily move Jesus to execution. But on several accounts, the high priest, they violated their own law and God's law in the trial of Jesus. It proves that this was the greatest mistrial ever. First, by their own rules, the Sanhedrin was not supposed to make any judgments at night. Of course, this takes place in the middle of the night because they don't want anyone to see it. And second, the Sanhedrin was not supposed to make any judgments outside their chambers in the temple. They're not supposed to meet in the high priest's court. But there they are again because they don't want anybody to see this. Third, there is to be no trial on the Sabbath or on a feast or the day before a feast. But they violate this for Jesus. They don't care that it's Passover. Fourth, the Sanhedrin members, they were, to, they were supposed to function just as a neutral judge. They're not supposed to be gathering evidence and presenting a case. They're not prosecutors. They're just judges. But with Jesus, they all act like prosecutors. They're trying to find evidence against him. Fifth, when any criminal was convicted of a capital crime, the Sanhedrin had to meet again the next day, 24 hours later, to give a full day to pass. They could think about it, make sure they weren't rushing to judgment. But after they condemned Jesus in this mock trial, they sentenced, sentenced him to death like two hours later, a couple hours later. They, they couldn't do it fast enough. And lastly, perhaps worst of all, according to the Old Testament, any capital case had to be backed and confirmed by the presence of two or three witnesses. Eyewitnesses, they had to see the crime and agree and testify. But for Jesus, they tried, they tried so hard to get some witnesses together. But not even any two of them could agree on any wrongdoing Jesus had done. This leads to, secondly now, the testimony. Number two, the testimony. From the transport to, secondly, now the testimony. Look at verse 55. It says, Now the chief priests and the whole council, that's the Sanhedrin, kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. And they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. Now, do you see how backwards this is already from the start? Typically, when someone commits a crime, investigators look for evidence, and then they make an arrest. But with Jesus, they start by arresting him. 
Now they're desperately trying to fabricate some evidence so that they can come up with a crime. They don't even know what crime he's committed. They don't have charges. They're just trying to make charges. It's, it's totally backwards. But again, for us, we, we know that's expected. They have, in their minds, they have found Jesus guilty and deserving of death a long time ago. Now they just need to find some reason to make it seem legal. They desperately need to pin some wrongdoing on him. But the thing is that they can't. It's not so easy. They're not finding anything. The verb used here of their search depicts a continual, incessant activity. They, they keep trying. They kept searching for testimony against Jesus, but nothing legitimate was found. Many Sanhedrin members themselves had run-ins with Jesus, but it didn't go anywhere. They tried to chat, trap Jesus in a statement, but he always turned the tables on them, and, and they always left humiliated. So they're not saying a whole lot. Rather, other witnesses have been brought in. Surely Sanhedrin members, they woke up some of their cronies in the middle of the night. They brought them to the high priest's courtyard to testify against Jesus. And the picture is this parade. Witness after witness comes, takes the stand, so to speak, to testify against Jesus. I heard him say this. He, he did this. But even here, nothing was consistent. They were just contradicting one another all the time. No two were in agreement. The closest these witnesses ever came in accusing Jesus of wrongdoing is found in verse 57. So keep reading. Verse 57 says, Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. So finally, two men come forward, and they both claim they heard Jesus speak against the temple. And here, at least they're on the right track. Because, yes, technically Jesus did say something like this three years prior. The first time he cleansed the temple, he did say, John 2.19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Of course, we know he was talking about the temple of his body. They thought he was talking about the literal temple. But it didn't matter because as, they, as time went on, even this, they didn't agree. Verse 59. But it says, not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. At this point, you can start to feel the chief, the chief priests and the leaders are starting to panic. At this point, everything was going so well. Jesus was betrayed by Judas. They had him arrested. They brought him back. They finally, he's on trial. It's in secret. It's away from the crowds. It's going so well, but now... They can't charge him. If they can't get something to stick, they're in real trouble. You have to sense the urgency of this mock trial. There's a reason they're doing this at night. There's a reason they're doing this at the high priest's house, away from the public eye. They don't want people to know about this trial. Jesus was still popular among many, especially in Passover time. There were many Galileans in town. And just arresting Jesus could start a riot. Now, when Jesus is condemned and led to the cross, his popularity vanishes because no Jew thought that could ever happen to the Messiah. But as it stands right now, they know if they're not careful and word gets out that Jesus has been arrested and is on trial, that, that could be enough for them to have real trouble on their hands, have a riot on their hands. So they've got him arrested in secret now that they have to have him charged and found guilty by mourning before this gets out, before everyone wakes up for Passover. Now you might wonder, if they hate him so much, why don't they just kill him themselves? And trust me, they want to. But they're hypocrites. They're all about appearance, and they know that would be the end for them. That would destroy their credibility. They can't go that far. And in addition, it would get them in trouble with the Romans. Because under Roman rule, these Jews did not have the authority to execute the death penalty. The Romans have to sign off on any capital punishment. And this is why they desperately need real charges against Jesus. He's popular. If he were a nobody, they could take him out back and, and stone him to death, like they did with Stephen. But Jesus is way too popular that they have to go through the courts. They need the Romans to sign off. They need something real. Because if they don't have something real, what are the Romans going to do? They'll just scourge Jesus and let him go. They'll beat him up 
and let him go. That's what we'll see later Pilate wanted to do. It's like, let's just scourge him and, and release him. But for now, the Sanhedrin knows they desperately need to get something on Jesus that will stick. Otherwise, they're going to lose their window of opportunity. We see this desperation come out in number three, the trap. The trap in verse 60. It says, The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and he did not answer. The case against Jesus felt like it was slipping through their fingers. The chief priests had been serving as prosecutors, but they failed. Now it's time for the high priest. Caiaphas, the main guy, is like, he's got to take it into his own hands. He steps up. He gets in the ring. It's, it's up to him now. This whole procession of false witnesses, it's not working out. He's going to have to make Jesus talk. Get him to confess. And it's a smart tactic. When police are investigating a, a suspect, they want him to talk all day. Because the more he let him talk, the greater chance he'll slip up, he'll say something to incriminate himself. As the saying goes, sometimes you just need to give someone enough rope to hang themselves with. But Jesus, he's not talking. He's giving them the silent treatment. He's not saying a word. And why should he? He technically could speak up and clear his name, all these false charges brought against him. But, but why? Why justify them? They're contradicting themselves. He doesn't have to say anything. They're doing it for him. Also, Jesus knows they're not seeking the truth. They're not trying to serve his best interests as a citizen. He knows this is a mock, a mock trial. So, so why bother saying anything? And in fact, his silence throughout most of the Jewish and Roman trials is actually fulfilling prophecy like a lamb silent before its shears. But as Jesus remains silent, you can see the desperation level rising among the high priest. His blood is starting to boil. He's got to do something to make Jesus say something. So he, he decides to spring a, a little trap for Jesus, namely by asking Jesus very directly under oath to testify against himself. They had actually not done this before. According to Matthew 26, the high priest puts Jesus under oath and he says, I adjure you by the living God, which is to say, if you, if you really believe in God, you, you must answer this question. And then he says, Mark verse 61, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one, the son of God? Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? Never had they actually asked Jesus that directly, like this, this question. In fact, this was the first legitimate question Jesus received that night. Now, he's not really bound to answer this. Jesus could have answered with another question, like he did so often. Or he could have pleaded the fifth, given them more silent treatment. He'd be justified. In fact, if Jesus just keeps his mouth shut, he would save himself. Do you realize that? If he just said nothing, he'd be fine. They, they have nothing. Their case is melting away. They don't have anything on them. This is their last resort. They have nothing to execute Jesus before the Romans. So if he says nothing, he's going to walk away. And although that's true in another sense, we know Jesus, at this point, he has to answer this question, doesn't he? To stay silent would, in a way, almost deny his ministry and his mission. This is the reason that he, that he came. He knew that by opening his mouth and speaking the truth about himself, he would be signing and sealing his own death warrant. But what could he say? This was the reason for which he came. So he talks. And we find number four, the truth. Fourthly, the truth. Look at verse 62. And Jesus said, I am. I am. And you shall see. 
the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Here is Jesus unequivocally, unashamedly, unreservedly revealing his true identity. He is the Christ, the Messiah, and he is the Son of God. He's the divine Messiah. And I want you to understand here for a moment how big a deal this verse, this statement is. Do you realize this is the first time Jesus has in public fully embraced and revealed his own identity? It's happened in private, but never in public has he done this. Has he come out and said it? Yep, I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. This is the first time. All throughout Mark's Gospel and the other Gospels, we see the true identity of Jesus slip out. It comes out. He's not just a prophet. He's the Messiah. He's not just a man. He's the Son of God. We see it. It comes out. But whenever his identity gets out, how does Jesus respond? He seals it back up. Remember this? Mark 134. He was not permitting demons to speak because they knew who he was. Mark 311. Some unclean spirits were shouting before him, we know you, you're the son of God. And he did not permit them to speak. Mark 9, verse 9. After the transfiguration, he told the disciples, don't tell anyone what you've seen. Matthew 8, verse 4. Jesus heals a leper and he says, don't tell anyone. We read all these verses and we're like, what, what's going on? What gives? He is the Messiah. This is why he came. Why is he hiding it? But as we've learned all throughout Mark, Jesus knows that he is not the Messiah the Jews were looking for. They had become warped and they fancied a purely political Messiah, a son of David who would deliver them from Rome and set Israel on top. They failed to recognize that the Messiah would be greater than David, greater than a mere man. And so in this admission in verse 62 here, Jesus, he's actually quoting a couple of Old Testament passages. Psalm 110 speaks of the Messiah sitting at God's right hand. Jesus used that same verse just days earlier to teach the religious leaders that the Messiah is to be greater than David. Yes, the Messiah will be a son of David, but David himself calls the Messiah Lord. So who's greater? The son of David is going to be greater than David. Furthermore, Jesus also revealed many times that the Messiah, he's not just a son of David. He's also the son of God. He's God in the flesh. This was not an Old Testament mystery. We've got the promise of Emmanuel, God with us. And furthermore, that's why Jesus also quotes here Daniel 7.13. That's the second part of this quote. Daniel had a vision of a divine being who was distinct from God. I'll read it for you, Daniel 7:13 and 14. Daniel said, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days, God, and was presented before him. And to him, to the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. That's a profound Old Testament passage where another being next to God receives all the glory. And Jesus basically saying, that's me. That, that's me. I am that son of man. He is the divine Messiah, the one to whom God the Father himself will bestow all the glory. I get it, in a sense, why they thought Jesus was blaspheming. Because if it weren't true, he is blaspheming, right? We can't say this. But by his character, by his works, by his words, by his signs, by the Old Testament, they should have known better. They should have seen him for who he is. They should have believed in him. But in their hardness of heart and love of self, they did not want to. But this explains why Jesus refused to reveal his full identity in public at the beginning of his ministry. He knew 
for those first three years, they couldn't handle it. Like that, the saying in the movie goes, you can't handle the truth. They, they could not handle the truth. They would have just tried to kill him before his appointed hour. In fact, they did. Whenever his identity got out, they did try and kill him for it. This explains that pivotal passage I've told you about so many times in Mark chapter 8. Peter, he comes to finally confess the identity of Jesus. What does he say? Peter confesses, Lord, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter gets it. He got it right. He's like, this is who you are. We believe. But how does Jesus respond after Peter tells him his identity? Mark 8.30, Jesus says, he warned them to tell no one about him. What? Why, would, why shouldn't we tell anybody? But again, Jesus knew they wouldn't understand. At least not yet. They won't understand yet. Even more, what did Jesus say right after that? The next verse, Mark 8, 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, and the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed. And after three days, rise again. That's why. You couldn't say anything. Because they were not prepared for that. This was scandal to them. That the Son of Man, that Son of Man who's presented before the Ancient of Days, he's going to die by the hands of the religious leaders. That that doesn't make any sense. And, and even, even Peter couldn't handle it. Right after, what does Peter do? After Jesus says that, Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. He's like, no, that's not, that's not going to happen to you. Even the disciples couldn't get it yet. The Jews, they should have known better, but they didn't. And in God's providence, he used their hardness of heart to accomplish his will. For now, though, it just doesn't compute to them. doesn't make sense. This truth to them was a serious scandal. It would only be after the death and resurrection of Jesus that their eyes would be opened to see the plan, the true mission of the Messiah. First, like he revealed in Mark 10.45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came the first time to die for them that they might be saved from death through him. But now, you get all that? Now, though, we're near the end of his life, He's been arrested, and now he can let the cat out of the back. He can finally, unashamedly, just call it like it is. This is is the time. This is now the plan. Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? I am. Yep. You got it right. What else could he say now? He knew. He knew that by saying this, he was sealing his death warrant. But wasn't that the plan? Wasn't that the reason for which he came? He has to die. Now as readers, you and me, we are meant to feel the scandal of this as well at first. You remember the opening verse of Mark's gospel? Mark chapter 1, verse 1. He says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is What, what is Mark's gospel about? It's the good news of Jesus who is the Christ, the Son of God. That's what the whole book is about. But ironically, not till the end does Jesus finally come out and and say he is the Christ and the Son of God. And that's supposed to be good news. But we're actually learning he's going to die because of that, because he is the Christ and the Son of God. That doesn't sound like good news. That sounds like bad news. What's going on? The hero is not supposed to die. And he's not supposed to go out like this. Lastly, let me give you number five, the treatment. Watch how they treat him now. Verse 63, the treatment. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Now this is quite the charade. In Jewish culture, tearing your clothes was a sign of grief and mourning, outrage. But do you think the high priest was really outraged that Jesus 
blasphemed. No. In his heart, he was elated. On the inside, he was jumping for joy because they finally got something on Jesus to kill him. On the outside, though, he must keep up appearances. That's what this whole trial is about, keeping up appearances. So he acts outraged like he really cares about the sanctity of God's name. But they all understood Jesus was claiming to be the divine Messiah. Therefore, they have no more need of witnesses. Now they are witnesses. They've all heard it, and they find that to be deserving of death. In their mob mentality, Jesus is done. To maintain the guise of legality, the Sanhedrin will meet again. In a few hours, at the first crack of dawn, they will meet, they'll sentence him to death at lightning speed and ship him off to the Romans. That's Mark 15. But in the meantime, before that, their heart of evil and hatred is exposed in how they treat Jesus. Verse 65. Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. Can you just imagine this happening in a court of law today? The judge, the jury, the lawyers, even the bailiff, they all pile on the defendant and they start beating him up. I mean, that would be an outrage. That would be a, a huge perversion of justice. But this Supreme Court of Israel disintegrates into a lynch mob and they all just start beating on Jesus. The Sanhedrin members themselves spit on him to a, a clean Jew that was the greatest offense. They blindfold him. They beat him with their fists. The temple guard, now they're joining in. All the guards, they're just taking turns. And to add to this, they insult Jesus with mockery. As Matthew adds, they say to Jesus, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? He's blindfolded. If you're really the Christ... You should know who did this. Who hit you as you're blindfolded? All the while, though, Jesus doesn't say anything. He offers no word of protest. But here's, here's the amazing thing, this huge irony, that through their mockery as they beat him, they're actually testifying to his true identity and nature. As they beat Jesus, what are they calling him? Prophet. You're a prophet, right? Didn't Jesus predict that that exact thing was going to happen? By beating him and spitting on him while they call him prophet, they're actually fulfilling his own prophecy. Mark 10.33, he said before, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death, hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. They don't know it. They are proving he is a prophet. Furthermore, Jesus just predicted that the disciples would scatter. That had just been fulfilled. He predicted that Peter would deny him three times. That's about to be fulfilled. The irony is not lost on us. We are meant to see who Jesus really is. He was blindfolded, yet they're the blind ones. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is a prophet. And just just get this point. What does that mean about the prophecy he just uttered to them. Do you realize that's what he did in verse 62? He said, are you the Christ? Are you the son of the living God? Jesus said, I am. What did he say after that? He said, and you shall see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. That, that's, that's a promise. That's a prophecy. We talked about Jesus. He's quoting a couple of Old Testament passages that confirm his identity, yes. But in addition, through these passages, he is also referencing his future role as judge. Judge of the earth. That's the context of that Daniel reference, actually. The Son of Man is coming to judge the earth, to take over the earth, to judge everything. So Jesus, he's not only claiming divine authority, 
He's also telling these men that one day they will see it. He says to them, you shall see. They will see what he's talking about. They may have him right now. They may be passing judgment on him right now. But one day, those tables will be turned. And he will be passing judgment on them. Jesus presides over a higher court. And one day he will overturn the ruling of this lower court. This is not the last time they will meet in the context of a trial. Only next time it will not turn out so well for them. As Jesus said of himself right before this in the Olivet Discourse back in Mark 13, Jesus says, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds, the great power and glory. With Jesus finally admitting his identity, the the religious leaders of Israel, they think they've won the day. They've won. But in reality, they've just lost their souls. They may kill the Son of Man, but he will rise. He will ascend. He will sit at the right hand, and then he will return as judge. That day will come, and none will escape Christ's judgment. And as we read this text, we behold it for ourselves. We're meant to learn a lesson here ourselves. Namely, beware of passing judgment on Jesus. Be very careful how you judge Jesus. Because one day, he will judge you. This still happens today, doesn't it? People still today, they evaluate Jesus. They pass judgment on Jesus. They condemn him as worthy of death all over again. They reject him. They mock him as the son of man, the son of God. And they want nothing to do with him. And as people still today reject Christ, they're revealing the same wicked rebellion in their hearts as the Sanhedrin. The same rebellion that was in the hearts of Adam and Eve from the beginning. And we don't want God in our lives. We don't want him to rule over us. We don't want a Lord and master of our lives. We don't want to submit to his ways, even though they're better. We want our ways. We want God dead and gone. Jesus doesn't give me what I want. He doesn't fit my lifestyle. So you judge him in your heart. You condemn him as worthy of death. You ship him off all the same. Beware. Be very careful how you judge Jesus. Because one day, he will judge you based on how you judged him. There's no escaping his judgment. But the good news of this gospel is that there is rescue. You can be rescued from judgment by him. That's why he came the first time. That's why he, the sinless son of man and son of God, submitted himself to death. He did it for God's glory and he did it for you. That you might not have to face that judgment and that eternal death if you would humble yourself, turn to him, and judge him rightly for who he is, and judge him worthy of your entire life. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. So Christ also, after having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation. Without reference to sin, to those who eagerly await him. If Jesus is your Savior and Lord, by faith you call on him and trust in his death for the forgiveness of your sins. When he returns, it will not be in judgment for you, but in rescue and salvation. You will not find a judge when you see him. You will find a merciful Savior. This is the joy, the peace, the comfort we have at the cross. Is that you as well? Do you have this? Do you eagerly await his return? So what do you say? What do you make of Jesus? Consider 
very carefully how you answer that question. Who is he? Be careful how you judge him in this life because it will not be the last you hear of it. But judge him rightly. It's the Christ, the Son of God. Turn from your sins. Come to Jesus and then he will come for you to save you. Let's pray. Our God, our Redeemer, our Savior, even our friend. We can call you friend because of Jesus, what he did for us. We remember this morning our our Lord, our Savior, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we confess him as he is, Jesus, fully man, fully God, God in flesh, living a perfect life, innocently suffering, found guilty of crime he did not commit, and dying. But that was no mere death. It was, in a way, an eternal death as he bore all of our sin on that cross. This we confess joyously because by this we can be forgiven. We can pass out from under your judgment, Lord, and into your love, your mercy, your grace. And this is the only way. But we rejoice in this. We, for this, are the most joy-filled people in the world. And I pray for any this morning who don't have this joy, do not have this conviction that you would break open their hearts, that they would behold Christ for who he is, they would judge him rightly before it is too late and their judgment comes upon them. There is joy to be had, mercy, salvation, forgiveness, eternal blessedness. We are the most blessed people in the world. May they see it to repent, believe, and live. We thank you for this precious truth as we look forward to Easter and the coming weeks. We remember the Christ, the Savior who died and gave us the life we now have. In your name we pray. Amen.